In just the past two weeks, we've seen extreme floods in Europe, India and China and heat waves and wildfires in North America. There's now no question this is related to climate change. That's no longer up for debate. Instead, the focus has turned to how bad and how quickly this could all get. I'll be asking a top climate scientist on tonight's show. Also, I'll speak to an epidemiologist about falling case rates, the COVID development that's taken everyone by surprise, and we'll discuss Labour's hypocrisy on hire and fire and anti-vax extremists in London. I'm joined throughout the show by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing? I'm okay, considering the bottom of my road turned into the Poseidon adventure yesterday. I'm okay. Your 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 own house didn't get flooded. You haven't had anything ruined that was on the floor. No, no, no. And inshallah, it may stay that way. But um, my road is parallel to like a main road, which goes down towards a big junction. And when it's raining, you can just see it turn into a stream going downhill. It's a very, very slight incline. And then there's a bit near a railway bridge and it was just like knee deep. Um, I've, and I've, I've lived in this area for a really long time. I'm really familiar with this area. I've never seen anything like that before. Well, tonight you're going to find out whether this is going to be regular and, and worse every year. Um, uh, a cheery thought. Tweet your comments on the hashtag Tiski Sour if you have anything to say about the stories we are covering tonight or comment under the video, especially if you're watching this back on YouTube. Of course, if you have not already, do hit that subscribe button. We've known for a long time that climate change makes extreme weather events more likely, and this has never been more obvious than over the past two weeks. On the 14th of July, unprecedented floods hit Germany and Belgium. Now, these floods were caused by exceptionally high rainfall, which led to multiple rivers bursting their banks. The footage you can see here is from the Eiffel region in northwest Germany. That flooding laid waste to multiple towns and villages in the valleys of the Eiffel mountain range. In Germany, the flooding has caused over 177 deaths, making it the country's deadliest natural disaster since 1962. In Belgium, at least 37 people were killed. We can travel now to the Chinese city of Jiangzhou, where from last Tuesday, one year's worth of rainfall fell in 72 hours. The storm left parts of the city's metro system underwater, with commuters having to be rescued by the emergency services, and not all survived. Above ground riptides dragged people down high streets, and motorways were left underwater. Um, most rail in the region was down, as you can imagine. The flooding has left at least 63 people dead across the Hunan region and over 1 million displaced. China's government has called the downpour a once in 5,000 years event. Of course, extreme weather doesn't just mean flooding, and across much of the west coast of North America, it has meant extreme wildfires. This footage is from inside a fire engine, which is battling a wildfire currently raging on the California. Nevada border. Now, these fires are becoming ever more regular in North America. At the moment, north of California in Oregon, the bootleg fire has been raging for two weeks, covering an area of 617 square miles. And these wildfires come after a month of extreme heat waves on the US West Coast, where Seattle, Portland, and other cities have broken all time heat records. At the end of June, you would probably have heard about the town of Lytton in Western Canada, which recorded a temperature of 49.6 degrees 
which is the highest ever recorded in the country by quite a long way. Finally, we can turn to some less dramatic scenes, which are nonetheless closer to home. This weekend, London and the southeast of England were hit by severe flooding, which at least felt unprecedented to me, having lived here for 31 years. You can see here a car stranded on the North Circular with most of the road completely flooded. Um, we can also show you what public transport looked like on this day. Um, the next scene is, is putting Mill Lane Station in East London. Now, that is not an image that will reassure anyone that Britain is well prepared for catastrophic climate change. Really, really dramatic scenes from East London there. That was my very brief tour of two weeks of extreme weather. It's time now to speak to someone who can help us make sense of it. Simon Lewis is Professor of Global Change Science at University College London and co-author of The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene. To get us going, Simon, can you explain how unusual the extreme weather we have seen in the past two weeks and obviously going back the past months as, as well is? I mean, you could see those images, you think, oh, does this happen all the time? Statistically, is what we're seeing now exceptional? Each of these events are exceptional. So the uh, Chinese flooding, they had going back 5,000 years and showed that there was more rainfall that day than any other day over those 5,000-year period. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, that heat wave was also unprecedented. But what we have to remember is that climate change is increasing the probability of these events. And we will continue to see these extreme weather events increase in magnitude and in frequency as we go forward until we get carbon emissions under control. So while these are deeply concerning and, uh, and, and deadly in many cases, what we're, what we're seeing is the outcome of what scientists have been predicting for 30 years now. I, I want to talk about predictions because the Financial Times had a report that I found very worrying this weekend, which was suggesting that what we're seeing in in recent weeks and months is worse than what even the modelers predicted. And the models were, were already pretty worrying. Um, they quote Michael Mann, who's director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. And he said, while the overall warming of the planet is pretty much in line with climate models predictions from decades ago, the rise in extreme weather events is exceeding those predictions. Does that analysis ring ring true to you? Are the events we're seeing now outside even some of the worst case models of, of our climate future? And to what extent does that mean that we're now entering into the unknown? So the climate models have been very good at predicting the global mean temperature from all the additional carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere. But the question is, can we predict the impacts that really matter to people? And they may or may not be um, underpredicted. And the reason is that um, for these heat waves and uh, and flooding events in the in the northern hemisphere, they're related to the jet stream. And the question is whether the jet stream is kind of slowed down, which means that these weather events have longer time to build up the heat or a longer time to produce the rain, to produce the floods. And that's not well predicted, but it's a bit uncertain about, because we don't have enough data to say whether that's really the pattern that's going to happen going forward. So we'll certainly see much stronger 
uh, extremes and more frequently, but whether we will see these mega extremes uh, as frequently is 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 a is a bit is a bit unknown. Um, but I think what these weather events really show is how it doesn't take much to push a region outside the comfort zone of the society that's built up there and all the infrastructure that's been built up there over hundreds of years. And once we go outside that climate envelope of normality, then we're into really dangerous territory. And that's the same for everyone all over the world. Do you think, I mean, I suppose this could this could seem like an odd thing to say, but in a way, is there a, a silver lining to the fact that some of the biggest emitters in the world are currently experiencing the effects of climate change in the run-up to COP26. I remember one of my biggest worries about climate change was that it would, it would slowly make life impossible for the poorest parts of the world while the rich world could could go on with slightly warmer temperatures. It seems the fact that this extreme weather, which you know to some degree has come as a surprise in places like North America, Europe, China, means that that could spur these governments to greater action. Do you, do you think there is some truth in that? Do you think this could jolt them to realise the catastrophe that's that's coming down the line? I hope so. And I hope that people realise that this is happening under 1.2 degrees C warming. And on current emissions and current policies, we're destined for three degrees of warming this century. And the multiplication is not, not straightforward. It's much greater impacts at two degrees, at two and a half, and then three degrees. And if we're finding it so difficult at this time under 1.2 degrees C, then one would hope that that would really spur action. But we just seen the G20 environment ministers meet uh, last weekend, and they couldn't agree a communique that even included the words getting to net zero or 1.5 degrees C being the target that we should go for to curb climate change and keep these extreme weather events under more control. And we'll be talking, I mean, a lot on, on this show and the whole media will be talking a lot about climate policy in the run-up to COP26. A question I have for you is, is anyone doing it right? Is anyone acting in a way that you think is commensurate with the the risk we're facing and, I mean, the extreme events we're seeing, we're seeing right now? Is there any country or government that, that people can point to and say, you should be doing it like them? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Um, countries are just not on track Every country and every sector of every country needs to get to zero emissions to stabilize the climate. And I think that penny hasn't quite dropped with policymakers. They're always looking for a get out clause. And we've got to halve emissions globally within the next decade and then eliminate 2050 to meet 1.5 degrees C and limit the extreme weather events to being worse than now, but they'll stabilize at that worst level. So it's it's a it's a big and difficult problem, and I don't think any country has has done really well. So the UK has done well in terms of moving off coal and onto renewables and seeing big productions in in its emissions, but in every other sector, almost nothing has happened. And similarly for other countries, they may have one set one set of policies in one sector that they've done some, but overall we're just miles away from dealing with this problem even though we've known it's a problem for at least 30 years. Very sobering. Simon Lewis, thank you so much for speaking to us this, this evening. Very insightful. It's been a real pleasure. Ash, I want to bring you in on this. I know neither of us are climate scientists, but we do 
talk about the politics of these things. And I mean, you'll probably agree with me, you know, climate change can be quite a difficult thing to have political conversations about because it is so technical. But it is these situations when there is, you know, extreme weather that's on people's doorstep, that it suddenly becomes a live political issue. And it does seem at this point that it's not implausible that at the next general election, climate change and which party is most capable of tackling it could be a real issue that could determine election results. Do you, do you think that's plausible? Well, I think one of the things to bear in mind is that the big fossil fuel polluters have had a 40-year head start on ploughing money so that our political imaginations and the language we have with which to even discuss climate change is severely constrained and limited. So the shifting of the language away from global heating and towards climate change, which is a little more neutral. Um, the emphasis on things like individual actions. So the first uh, carbon footprint calculator was funded by BP. Why? It gets people thinking about those micro changes to their own lives and not the really big stuff about how our economy is structured. And I think in lots of ways, our politics and our political imaginations and our political media have all really suffered because of that 40-year corrosion of our ability to name what the problem is. And it wasn't an accident, it was designed that way. I, th I think we've got to think what is the corrective to that. And I think it's about a revived climate movement. And it means doing things which are a bit different from how the climate movement has done things before. I think it's in some ways come across as a bit subculturally niche, if you know what I mean. It's quite in-groupy. And it needs to find a way to speak outside of that kind of in-group identity. And I also think that it needs to become a hell of a lot more assertive and in some cases aggressive. Because I think when it's couched in the language, sometimes of, you know, hippy-dippy, let's all weave our jumpers, um, the urgency is lost. And so I think that we've really got to think about what kinds of political movements are necessary in order to force this up the agenda and really turn the heat up on politicians. So I think that on the one hand, there's the Andreas Malm theory, where he sort of goes, what we need is mass civil disobedience or indeed even eco-terrorism. Now, for me, my issue with that is that that means that you're forced into operating in a clandestine way. And I believe in mass participation, uh, you know, people power. And so I think that you can't really do that with something which is quite so vanguardist. I think what we need to start doing is making room for a movement which is very strategic in how it identifies targets and pushes politicians into making the kinds of commitments which need to be made and sticking to them. I've always said, imagine if we had a political media which questioned and hounded politicians on the climate the way that they did about Brexit in you know, 2018, 2019. If literally every single politician was hammered and hounded and harangued into making some really concrete promises, which they had to live up to, otherwise they'd lose their seat. I think that the media has got a really big role to play if it takes on that responsibility in pushing politicians to that place. And again, what pushes the media, I think it can be the existence of incredibly loud, incredibly mobilized, incredibly vocal movements. So I think that those are the things which, um, you know, will help 
or push our politics to the place where it needs to go. I don't think it's an inevitable consequence of us seeing the impact of the climate crisis right here on our doorstep. And the reason why I say that is look at how this government has decided to handle the pandemic. It's you're all on your own now. Everyone make your own decisions. And we just have to live with the pandemic as it is. And I think it was Aditya Chakraborty who said, keep an eye on that because that's going to be how they respond to the climate crisis eventually. And we cannot let them. We've got some comments coming in. Marie Gardner with five pounds. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you very much. And Con Mac tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. The Koch brothers, who are billionaire oil barons in the US, have filed money everywhere in anti-climate propaganda. We've also seen fossil fuel companies there and here in the UK pressing government to promote gas as a not-so-bad resource as opposed to going full green. Um, all very important to know. We should of course, remind ourselves that just because flooding is now on people's doorsteps, that doesn't mean the fossil fuel companies are going to roll over and say, okay, fine, let's all go green, which is why, as Ash says, we're going to need these powerful movements. Um, if you're enjoying what you're watching, please like the video before we go on to our next story. Since the Delta variant arrived in the UK, COVID cases had been spiralling out of control. I say had because there seems to have been an about face over the past six days. According to NHS data, starting from last Sunday, the exponential rise in COVID cases went into reverse. And for the first time since February, we have seen six consecutive days of declining cases. In the last 24 hours, 24,950 cases were reported, a figure which is down from 40,000 on the same day last week. It's also less than half the daily cases registered just nine days ago when 55,000 cases were recorded in 24 hours. So what explains this dramatic about turn? Earlier today, I spoke to Billy Quilty, a researcher and disease modeler at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I asked Billy whether we can be confident this decline in registered cases reflects a decline in actual cases and not just less people getting tested. I feel like the uh, drop in cases uh, over the past week is genuine. Um, testing is currently has slowed slightly, but it's quite flat. It hasn't uh, dropped to the same extent that we've seen cases drop as. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is um, changes in uh, behaviour over the short term. So we, we've basically seen over the past few weeks uh, the end of the Euros. And during the Euros, there was a spike in young people, uh, most notably in young men. And then we're seeing an age, uh, a drop in that age group um, as the years have finished. And we also saw this in Scotland when they were knocked out of the tournament. We've also had a spell of good weather. So uh, there was a, a heat wave last week and that's going to basically push people outdoors. So uh, it, uh, their interactions are going to be safer as transmission is less likely to occur outdoors. And we've also had the, um, the so-called pandemic. So uh, there was a close to half a million people asked to self-isolate in the past week. And that is going to have some effect. Uh, we've also got at-home testing now, so we may be catching cases and quarantining people uh, earlier than we were before and uh, preventing more transmission that way. Lots of people are quite excited that this seems to be the first time that we've seen cases significantly fall without something like a lockdown. That's got people talking about herd immunity. Do you think this, this is a sensible moment to suggest that maybe we have reached some kind of herd immunity threshold? or at least more of one than we than we ever have before? I think it's too soon to say that now. Uh, I think we've seen cases fall in other countries uh, and that's, uh, for example, India, and that, that's probably more a result of 
regional heterogeneity in, in cases. So we see cases rise and fall in different parts of the country. And that heterogeneity can also be expressed in, in different groups of people. So during the, the Euros, we may have seen more sociable young people form bubbles, which then become infected quite rapidly. And we may see that now a large proportion of people in those sociable bubbles have been infected. And then we may be seeing the cases drop as we see those bubbles reach herd immunity. But that doesn't apply to the whole country evenly. We may see cases rise and fall as they move into different bubbles, which have less population immunity over the course of the summer. Last Monday was the so-called Freedom Day. How long will it be until we know how significant effect that will have on, on, on case numbers? Could it be that we had a Euro 2020 spike and we're about to see an even bigger Freedom Day spike? Potentially, uh, although at the same time, uh, we've seen schools go out. So um, lots of cases now, um, because we vaccinated older people, are now concentrated in the young. So uh, there's going to be two competing factors there. One, that people are having more contacts because of step four, but also that uh, children are having less contacts because they're out of school. So it's very uncertain where it's going to go in the next few weeks. One thing that's been notable about this dip in cases is it doesn't seem like anyone saw it coming. We had Neil Ferguson on, on Andrew Marr just over a week ago saying that it was certain that we were going to go to 100,000 cases a day and then potentially up to 200,000 cases. So why was this not foreseen? And will this change those projections that people have been making over the coming weeks and months? So it's pretty difficult to incorporate the kind of behavioural changes we've seen over the past few weeks into uh, large-scale epidemiological models because, you know, we can't predict the weather more than two weeks out. So when we have a heat wave, it's very hard to know what effect that will have and what magnitude uh, that effect will have. And while some, some models do try and account for behaviour, so um, the LSHDM model incorporates Google mobility data but that's only in the past. We don't know how that's going to influence or change in the future. And that's on the macro scale. So it's hard to really know like that, that heterogeneity aspect that I was speaking about previously. It's hard, it's, it's hard to model that on a national scale. So, And it, it is worth noting that the roadmap models did have a large degree of uncertainty. So in a way, we are still capturing this effect. It's still likely within the, uh, the confidence intervals we've seen. And it's just very hard to know what's going to happen over the next few months. That was Billy Quilty from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Ash, we finally have some good news on, on COVID. Are you feeling positive about this drop or are you feeling like, oh, don't get too excited? It's it's about to get a lot worse and we'll I mean, look how ridiculous saying, we were to think it was going down. I'd been saying for ages, get the kids out of school, send them home and open the nightclubs because you can do your reading, writing, arithmetic at home. But can I dance on a table to got to be real alone in my house? Oh, I cannot. So I think that we've always been suffering from this kind of misallocation of priorities. Um, I, th I think one of the things that Billy said, which is really wise, is that there was always a lot of uncertainty in the roadmap. And there's never going to be simply one thing which has one set of effects. So obviously, more contact because of people being in nightclubs will increase a certain amount of transmission. Kids being out of school will reduce a certain amount of transmission. You've got the vaccine in play as well. And also, just because you've got nightclubs opening doesn't mean you've got all young people behaving exactly the same way. So where there will be a significant portion of people who are like, you know what, like the rules mean that I can get back in the club, I can go to parties, I can socialize indoors. Um, there will still be a chunk of people who feel uncomfortable with doing that or will uh, modulate and adjust their behaviors in all sorts of different ways. So I think that we can be cautiously welcoming 
of this good news. I think that we should bear in mind that it's going to be another two, three weeks before we really see the impact of having moved to step four of the unlocking roadmap. Um, but you know what? Nobody gains by being a doomster and a gloomster, to quote Boris Johnson. None of us want to be in a pandemic forever. And if what we're seeing is that the vaccine is having a significant enough of, a, of an effect on transmissions that we can, uh, you know, reopen and reduce case numbers at the same time, then that's fantastic. But I just think we should be a bit cautious and keep a beady eye on the data before we, you know, announce mission accomplished on an aircraft carrier. Yeah, I think announcing mission accomplished would definitely be a big mistake at this point. I mean, what is positive from this is if we see cases falling, that means that for a period of time, R was below one. And we can assume that for the past week or so, R has been below one. And to me, what that means is with with the current level of immunity we've got, which isn't going to be enough to keep R below one in all situations, that was enough to keep R below one when we happened to have a heat wave and we didn't really have many mass events. Obviously, you know, most of the the clubbing that's taken place after Freedom Day won't yet have fed in. We haven't seen the you know the results from the first actual weekend where people were allowed to go to clubs. But for that period of time where we had very hot weather and no mass events, that was enough to keep R below one and the the epidemic shrunk. What we're going to find out in the next week is whether or not we have enough immunity, which is slightly more now than we had a couple of weeks ago. If we have enough immunity to to keep R below one when nightclubs are open and when the weather's shit. And as we've been talking about, you know, tonight the weather's been really shit recently. So, so people haven't been leaving the houses as as much. If you, you know, you probably know this already, but uh, the reason the weather matters is because when there's a heat wave, people go outside, they socialize outside. Also, the sun has some effect at uh, killing the virus. Obviously, that doesn't mean you should try and inject it in your veins in the way that Donald Trump said. But <laughs> weather when you're outside helps. Did he say Again, inject the sun? Well, I think he wanted to get UV into the veins. And then he wanted to get bleach into the veins. Um, wow. I mean, we would so, recommend neither of those things. But if you want the feeling <laughs> of the sun coursing through your veins, I'd suggest go to Amsterdam and have some psychedelic truffles because they really do do the trick, you know. Or a sunbed. Uh, <laughs> both of both of those options come with some health risks. So you, you'll have to uh, weigh up which one matters to you more, your sanity or the uh, not getting... Melanoma. Old age. Yeah. Yeah, that's more important than not getting wrinkles in your old age. Um, when Keir Starmer stood to be Labour leader, he promised he would bring integrity to the party. However, the key to having integrity is practising what you preach. And when it comes to employment practices, Labour is doing the precise opposite. All year, Keir Starmer has loudly opposed the practice of firing and rehiring workers. He was right to do this. It's obviously a terrible practice. It's a way that bosses can replace their workers with who have high rights with workers who have lower rights. It might be the same worker. Often you say, we're going to fire you on your current contract and then rehire you on a new contract, or it can be different people. Now, let's look at some examples of Keir Starmer calling out these practices. In April, when British gas workers were being threatened with fire and rehire, Keir Starmer said, the whole labour movement stands in solidarity with British gas workers. They're defending themselves against the shameful practice of fire and rehire. British gas must abandon this practice and the government must outlaw it. Later that month, he tweeted, As I said at the TUC last year, fire and rehire is wrong and it should be illegal. 
That's why I'm supporting Unite the Union's campaign to outlaw fire and rehire. And in May this year, in response to a story about Argos, he tweeted, threatening to sack staff unless they agree to worse pay terms and conditions is appalling. Fire and rehire must be outlawed. Those are all very good tweets, the kind of tweets you should see from a Labour leader. However, due to more recent events, they leave Starmer now vulnerable to charges of hypocrisy. That's because Labour has just fired a third of its permanent employees, a third of its permanent employees, while at the same time advertising for new workers on insecure contracts. John Snow in The Independent writes that despite the scale of the layoffs, the party is actually recruiting temporary staff on significantly less secure conditions than those being asked to take redundancy. An advert post on a recruitment website offers potential workers a six-month contract and says work is to be done from home. All applicants need their own laptop, a secure Wi-Fi connection at home, and must bring their satisfactory firewall and virus protection. The advert does not mention that the job is working with Labour and falsely claims that it is in the public sector, but the Independent has confirmed with the party that recruits will be put to work in its governance and legal unit, which investigates claimants against members. Um, I should say this is by John Stone, not John Snow. The new recruits are being offered a decent wage. They're being offered £19 an hour, but a six-month contract does mean they'll have fewer rights than the people Labour are laying off, the many people Labour are laying off. Defending the decision, a Labour source told The Independent, this is unrelated to the announcement about the voluntary severance scheme. It was agreed by the NEC several weeks ago as a necessary and temporary measure to help us clear the backlog of complaints as quickly as possible. Referring to the redundancy scheme, they said, this is not an easy decision and we recognise it will be a very difficult time for staff. We will fully engage and consult with them and the trade unions throughout. We are reshaping our party's operation with a view towards being fighting fit for upcoming campaigns and the next general election. Ash, what do you make of this? Do you think the charge of hypocrisy is warranted here? I mean, I think it's worse than hypocrisy. I think it's venal. I think it's callous. I think it's cruel. And I think it shows that the Labour Party is neither serious politically under the leadership of Keir Starmer, but also in terms of the management of its own internal bureaucracy. It's simply not fit for purpose. And what is the one thing Keir Starmer promised when he became Labour leader? It was competence. These are not the actions of a competent leader, and it's certainly not the actions of a competent General Secretary, uh, David Evans. So if there's one person who needs to be fired and indeed not rehired is David Evans, because this is a crisis of his and Keir Starmer's making. Um, they alienated lots of left-wing Corbyn-supporting members, so their membership dropped significantly, and it meant they had less money coming in. And despite the promises of the likes of Peter Mandelson, those big money donors never returned. You also had the unions uh, becoming a lot more circumspect about making uh, payments to the Labour Party. So you do have uh, an internal cash flow problem. And instead of that being made the responsibility of the senior members of staff and the leadership who took the decisions which got the party in that state, it's now, you know, the case 
well, you know, as in the kind of institutions and organizations that Labour would normally criticize, that the books are being balanced on the backs of some of the most precarious and vulnerable workers. And you look at where the firing and rehiring is going on in terms of uh, the governance and compliance unit, you think about, well, what's clearly a priority here? When you've got a third of permanent staff being made redundant, you've got an expansion in the governance and compliance unit, which means that Kisama is going, you know, while we've got um, you know, our hands on the tiller of the leadership, what we've got to do is crank up the purging operation of left-wing members or people who, you know, would be unlikely uh, to vote for a centrist or a right-wing candidate if there is another leadership election. So I think that tells you a lot about uh, priorities of this particular Labour leadership. I think it's venal, I think it's self-serving, and I think it's deeply hypocritical. Mm. And obviously, you know, their defence is we needed this particular task to be done, which is looking through this backlog of complaints. Now, you, you might think that if a, if a leadership of an organisation wanted to look after its workers, it might say, okay, we're going to redeploy you. There are some people in one department, they're going to redeploy them um, to be in the complaints department. I assume the reason they didn't do that, why they don't want to do that, is because they they don't necessarily think these employees are aligned with them politically. So they want to get people who will just follow all of their orders and basically purge who they want to purge. And I assume they didn't have confidence that many of the staffers hired um, under five years of Jeremy Corbyn would do that. Now, from things such as the Labour leaks, you'll know that Jeremy Corbyn and his team were far less successful at ridding um, Labour HQ of people who were ideologically opposed to them. You could look at this and say, well, good for Keir Starmer, he's been incredibly ruthless. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't. But what did you see when Jeremy Corbyn tried to do things that were just one-tenth of this? There would be media outrage, you'd have the MPs on all of the radio shows saying he's a Stalinist. Now this happens under Keir Starmer, so they just get rid of a third of the staff all in one go, and no one's calling him a Stalinist, no one's saying anything about it, they just say it's completely unremarkable because Keir Starmer does it, whereas when Jeremy Corbyn did it, it would be an outrage, and that's why they kept a load of people on for years, even when they were actively um, trying to undermine the party's chances. Back to the issue of workers' rights. It was an awkward day for this news to drop for the Labour Party. That's because Angela Rayner was launching Labour's New Deal for Working People. Here she is talking to the BBC. People in Britain shouldn't have to go to work and really struggle to feed their families and support themselves in very low-paid, insecure work. So today it's about making sure that everybody gets rights from day one in employment, can have the right for flexible working, not just for the employer, but for the employees as well, who have done so much, you know, adapting and working from home over this period, and making sure that everybody has a minimum of at least £10 an hour real living wage. And I think that will really boost our economy, but but also give people some security and respect in work. And we think that's the absolute minimum that people should expect. In the accompanying tweet, so Raina tweeted out that clip from the BBC. She wrote, today we are launching our new deal for working people to make our economy work for working people. Flexible working for all, living wage of at least £10 an hour, job security and rights from day one on the job, not insecure contracts. At £19 an hour, Labour have met one of those conditions. Presumably, also, these jobs are going to be fairly flexible. You can do them from home. Job security and rights from day one on the job. Now, if this is a six-month fixed-term contract and they've just got rid of a load of people who had permanent contracts, it seems to me that this move by the Labour Party has created 
a net loss in job security. Do you think that's fair, Ash? Does, does, can a six-month contract count as job security? Well, it seems like they gave four jobs to Angela Rayner and sacked everybody else. I mean, that doesn't seem like a great distribution of contracts. But like joking aside, what they've done is exactly the same thing that they would rightly criticize any other business or institution or organization for. You get rid of a swathe of the workforce who are on better paid, uh, you know, more secure contracts where they've got rights and more than that because they've got those rights and they're secure in their jobs it means that they will feel confident to do things like be part of a unionized workforce or really basic stuff like take a sick day or um you know a time off to look after their mental health um whereas when you replace that secure workforce with an insecure workforce you know on temporary contracts and they're worried about you know getting their next contract they're hoping that they'll get one in the same workplace so they don't have to jump around from place to place those are exactly the kind of workforce uh, workers who don't unionize exactly the kind of workers who don't take sick days when they deserve them and ultimately suffer a lot more stress and anxiety because of that insecurity. So I don't think it's serious for Angela Rayner to be going around, you know, advocating a set of policies, which yes, I do agree with. And I think that some of them are really good policies. When when you take one look at her own party and they're doing absolutely all of the things that they would castigate a business for doing. Exactly. And I mean, they'll say, oh, we're not a business. We're a political party. We've got all of these financial problems, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I remember years when you had MPs who were all on 70 grand a month who talked about workers' rights if you talked about mandatory deselection. So, <laughs> so they, they, they saw democracy as an affront to their workers' rights. Now, an MP you know, isn't, isn't a worker. No, one, no one's their boss. Um, you know they're elected. That's stating the obvious. But they don't, they don't have workers' rights in the same way that everyone else has because they're not employed you know, by by anyone, they are the boss of their of their office. But you had all of these Labour right MPs who say, "How dare you? We're supposed to be the party of workers' rights, and you're trying to implement local democracy. That means we might get replaced by someone else." Won't That's somebody think of, of Neil Coyle? Neil exactly. Coyle, leader of the Precarious Workers Brigade. I mean, and, and, and I'll bet that very few of the third one third of Labour's staff members who have been made redundant were on 71 grand, right? The, these are much lower paid workers than the Labour MPs <laughs> who went on all of the national radio stations to say, oh, how dare these bullying members even consider replacing us with someone more aligned to their politics, right? It's The hypocrisy is impossible to ignore, unless I mean, you're the mainstream media who are who just love ignoring it. And this was, this was something which I said when Corbyn was leader, and I say it now that he's not leader as well, which is that, the Labour Party is a toxic workplace. It really, really is. Some of the stories that I've heard coming out of the leader's office, as well as MP's offices, and then also Southside, which is the Labour Party HQ, would absolutely horrify you. I'm talking people behaving in ways which are so egregious that you would think that they wouldn't be tolerated in any normal workplace. And the reason why such bad behavior is able to flourish within the Labour Party is because, you know, people come under, you know, factional protection. So there are political interests in keeping people in certain positions, even if they treat their colleagues or people who work under them like absolute trash. And I'm talking about stories I've heard about sexual harassment, about, you know, 
workplace bullying, about people who have been made to work doing jobs within their role, which aren't part of their actual role and are really demeaning and awful. And I'd like to say that, oh, it's only the Labour right who've done this. No, this was something which was actually a non-factional phenomenon. But because everyone is so concerned with looking after their own little empire, they're just horrible behaviours which have been normalized and, you know, effectively co-signed within the Labour Party. It is a toxic workplace. Like I would never, ever work there in a million years because I value my own mental health too much. I agree with that. What I'd add is that whilst this does happen on all sides, only one side gets scrutinized. You know, the amount of stories we heard when Corbyn was leader about things like, you know, internal beef going on within the Labour Party. And now just all of these journalists who found that incredibly interesting thought that was really worthy of leading news bulletins on on radio stations. Now we're just like, oh no, it's completely normal for you to just sack a third of your workforce. Imagine if that had been done when Corbyn was leader, that there would you, you would have had MPs I... saying we're going to form a new party because of because this is such an affront to workers' rights. Now no one's even right. Not a, not a, not a squeak from anyone. Can I tell you a little story about that kind of blind eye to certain wings of the Labour Party? Because it was honestly one of the most wild things I'd ever seen in my entire life. So I was on a BBC politics programme and one of the discussions was, are the hard left uniquely nasty? And the idea of balance for this discussion was me, a Lib Dem, someone from the Labour right who used to work for Tony Blair, and uh, an MP called Kwasi Kwarteng. And obviously for this discussion, I was trying to say, no, like politics is a contact sport. I think that the left is unfairly scrutinized. That's why we're having this discussion. But obviously everyone disagreed disagreed with me and I, I came off the worst for it. Meanwhile, the former Blair staffer and Kwasi Kwarteng are getting at each other um, all program. They're just sort of needling each other. And then the cameras stop rolling because the program's over. And the Blair, like, staffer completely flipped, started screaming and yelling and bashing on the table, swearing, all sorts. And I thought that somebody was going to get punched. It ended up just sort of dissipating at that and quasi quarting, looking kind of um, a bit bemused uh, by the whole thing. Um, but what astonished me is that the host of this politics program took this really indulgent view and was like, oh, poor thing. I think you got rather wound up, don't you? And I was like, you guys have all just been telling me how unreasonable and angry and aggressive the hard left are when this is somebody from a wing of the Labour Party who you consider the moderates, the sensibles, the grown-ups who should be really in charge. You act like this is completely normal. So, Michael, you're completely right that there's really bad behaviour on all sides within the Labour Party. But from one side, you can literally scream, swear and shout in a TV studio and nobody will be interested in it. It's it's crazy. You've just made me nostalgic for the, that, that period of five years where people with our politics would get invited in studios to debate whether or not we were the worst people in the world. <laughs> that was, sort of, that was the, the, the tagline for so many shows. Are you an asshole with three people who think that you are? It's not. That's BBC very, Balance, baby. <laughs> exactly. That is BBC Balance. They're like, you should, you're, lucky, you should, you're lucky you ever got invited. <laughs> 
you may not have heard, you may have heard, or you may not have heard, we are currently in the process of hiring a new member of staff to join the Tisky Sour team. We are super excited about this. It's going to help us expand, improve the quality, find new stories, make it all look amazing. If you think you can do those things, we have extended the deadline. There is still time to apply. If you are interested, check out the link in the description to this YouTube video. And do make sure you check that out and do make sure you apply if you think you fit the bill. I promise this is a very fun place to work. Our final story. Anti-lockdown protests have hit London multiple times over the past year. Each one has been a mix of those opposed to lockdowns, those who are sceptical of vaccines, and those people who have bought into extremist conspiracy theories that COVID is all a hoax. Lockdowns are now over, which means that the more moderate section of that group of people, now I think these tended to be generally quite extreme people, but the more moderate demand was to end lockdowns. There are some reasonable people that think that was a bad policy. Those lockdowns are over. The only excuse for going on these protests now is if you're an extreme anti-vaxxer or if you're a conspiracy theorist COVID denier. These extremists were out in force in London this weekend. Anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists as overlapping sets of, well, quite frankly, bizarre people um, protesting outside Downing Street and in Trafalgar Square. I want to start by showing you some footage by Urban Pictures, which shows the chaotic scenes outside Downing Street. <laughs> People often say, you know, the hard left, the hard right, they're all the same. They're all, you know, two sides of the same coin. You never see people beating each other up on left-wing protests. Like sometimes you see sort of like aggy things. You'll see someone smash something. But you don't, you usually just see like two drunk people take lumps out of each other. I think it does say something um, about the politics of, of, of the different wings of this country. Um, that wasn't particularly surprising though. You've seen those kind of things at anti-vax, at these, these lockdown skeptic protests before. The next clip we're about to show you is really more shocking. It's a completely different kettle of fish. Kate Shemirani is someone we've spoken about before on this show. She's one of the most high-profile anti-vax activists in the country, and she's repeatedly spread misinformation about COVID-19, so much so. She's recently been struck off by the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Here she is speaking at the anti-vax rally at Trafalgar Square. Pass those to the guinea again! Pass them 
Jets. Ask them what is in it. Ask them. Get their names. You email them to me, the medical revolutionaries at protonmail.com with a group of lawyers. We are collating all that. At the Nuremberg trials, the doctors and nurses stood trial and they home. If you are a doctor or a nurse, now is the time to get off that bus. Get off it and stand with us, the people. I mean, that's a marginal opinion. Obviously, what she's expressing is a marginal opinion. But, uh, you know, the context here is we have had doctors and nurses who, you know, have, have worked so hard over the past 18 months, so, so hard, risked their lives, seen countless people pass away when they probably would have liked to have given them more help than they were able to because hospitals were so overwhelmed, people in care homes who moved into care homes to try and stop the spread of COVID-19. And now you've got thousands of people at Trafalgar Square listening to someone who is saying that these that doctors and nurses should be hung like Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. Ash, on, on this show, we frequently talked about, you know, the bizarre things that these, you know, COVID conspiracists believe and say. But this one, I think, you know, however used to viewing the kind of beliefs and modus operandi of these people, this was particularly shocking, wasn't it? I think what this tells us a lot about is a new permutation in the far right. And I think it's something which was being incubated in the United States and kind of blossomed under Trump. But we have also been seeing it here. And I think it's a turn towards not just conspiratorial thinking, but what's been described by some political theorists as the cosmic right. So a kind of embrace of, you know, high fantasy almost, in which you're all kind of these agents of history and involved in this big battle of good versus evil. And it's quite weird and it's quite fantastic. And it's, very dramatic and it animates a lot of these fringe elements on the far right so the QAnon conspiracy theory the stuff around Pizzagate it all kind of fits into this idea of I am an avenging angel battling against a grand and networked evil and so I think that this uh, former nurse so Kate Sheramani has been struck off and rightly so for peddling misinformation and for uh, I think inciting violence against healthcare workers. I think she's somebody who perhaps was quite drawn to that bit of the cosmic right. I don't know how much of this she actually believes, but I think you can see in how she carries herself and how she conducts herself that she likes to see herself in that kind of avenging angel kind of role. So I think it speaks to, you know, a kind of rampant narcissism a desire for attention but also to have people validating you in that way and they're validating you because it's a way of validating themselves and their own role in this kind of heroic manichaean struggle 
So I think that there is something to worry about here, not simply in terms of the pandemic and the direct impact of spreading COVID misinformation, but the way in which I think this conspiratorial, weird, fantastical bit of the right might develop here in this country too. That fantastical element of it is really odd, isn't it? Because it, it can make it seem sort of funny at first sight. You know, the Pizzagate, QAnon stuff, it seems just so ridiculous that you can laugh it off, but then it does have real world consequences. Let's look at the political response to this. Of course, it's not surprising the condemnations came in thick and fast. London Mayor Sadiq Khan said, this is utterly appalling and I have raised it directly with the Met Police. Our NHS staff are the heroes of this pandemic and Londoners from across this city roundly reject this hate. A spokesperson for Boris Johnson said any violence, threats or intimidation is completely unacceptable. And Keir Starmer described it as absolutely shocking and said he hopes her speech will be investigated and dealt with appropriately. Since then, it has been announced the Met are investigating the incident. Ash, you've, you've talked about, I suppose, what's odd about this movement, sort of where it's coming from ideologically. How worried about it should we be? I suppose some, some context for that question is that these anti-vaxxers, even before you get onto the hang doctors and the Nuremberg trials, you know, which is obviously mm. completely marginal and extreme, just this idea that vaccinations are conspiracy, which some people might have thought would have been a more widespread belief. Actually, we've mm. got uptake, which is over 90% among nearly all age groups in this country. There are many places in the world where anti-vax movements are much, much bigger than they are here. Is this something we can afford to to ignore because it's so marginal? Or do you think that it will have real life, real world effect? Well, look, I think that the effects of it will be much less pronounced than they have been, say, in the United States. So because of Trump in the United States, what you saw was almost a complete breakdown of the firewall that exists between the establishment right and the far right. And so it wasn't just about all of those people that entered government along with Trump. It also meant you had these figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are really from that quite wingnut bit of the far right, um, completely crackers, quite frankly, um, you know, entering uh, Congress. All right. So that's something which has, you know, got a long tail and is able to maintain a presence of the cosmic right within the halls of power. And so that's something which we haven't really seen in this country in the same way, that complete breakdown of the war between the establishment right and the far right. You've seen a great degree of contamination, particularly around the Brexit moment and the way in which the far right took that as an invitation into the halls of power. But because the Conservative Party are so dominant as an electoral force, um, I don't think that you've you've seen that same, uh, you know, kind of presence within Parliament the way you have in the United States. But one thing that might be something to be concerned about is that while I don't think that there is a great appetite for anti-vax conspiracy theories within the Parliamentary Conservative Party, perhaps some of these fantastical conspiratorial elements incubated in the cosmic right here in the UK might bleed into some of these MPs' rhetoric as they tilt more and more towards 
culture wars. So you have seen them lean into some conspiratorial content around the idea of Marxist critical race theory, I don't know, popping up in nurseries and primary schools and what have you. And I think that there might be some MPs who could be drawn towards that more in the coming years. So while I don't think that it will necessarily have a huge impact on vaccine uptake, certainly not the way it has been in some of the red states in the US, I think that there are some things to watch out for. The other variable is, of, of, of course, the, the media. Like Trump had a huge role in breaking down that barrier between the far right and, and the right in America, but it was also Fox News, which is why I'm, I suppose, we, we've talked about on previous shows, it's not doing particularly well, but GB News, the fact that it's got a lot of money behind it, and the first night that it showed, it had Dan Wooten railing against public health experts who he said were addicted to power. It was very much this sort of anti-science, conspiratorial, you know, pretty out there, actually, ideas that were popularised on, on, on Fox News and GB News seems pretty intent on, on bringing here. And actually, from the past two months, what it seems is happening on GB News is the more they fail, the further right they go. So they thought, oh, we're being too moderate. That's why not enough people are watching us. They've now got Nigel Farage on the show. And Nigel Farage is going to be doing a lot more of this anti-science nutty stuff than whoever had that show before him. And I do think, you know, what would our COVID crisis have been like if you had GB News as a very successful organization at the start of it? I do think, well, I mean, at the moment, we happen to have Boris Johnson who listened to the extremists at the Daily Telegraph. But if you had GB News, you would have also had a sort of grassroots movement behind Boris Johnson's terrible decisions, whereas it ended up that he was fairly isolated when it came to you know, believing the Great Barrington Declaration, believing mm -hmm. the let's do natural herd immunity people. So if GB News get what they want, I think you will see much more of this, what do you call it, the cosmic right sort of emerging yeah. In, I mean, in, in, in the UK. One, one thing to say about the broadcast environment in the UK is that while I think there's generally uh, less receptiveness towards the cosmic right, though you do have these figures like Dan Wooten and you do also have figures on talk radio who create a space uh, for those kinds of views to be heard and legitimized. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't have an anti-science tradition amongst very establishment journalists. So going back to, say, the conspiracy theories around the MMR vaccine supposedly causing autism in children, well, who was somebody who did a lot of work to convey about that theory into the mainstream press and to, you know, give it airtime and to legitimize it? It's Melanie Phillips, who still writes for The Times, who's still on Radio 4, who still writes for The Jewish Chronicle and enjoys a certain amount of respectability amongst that, you know, quite rarefied world of establishment media when it came to the AIDS crisis and denying the link between HIV and AIDS well who was in you know really platforming that theory when he was editor at the Sunday Times it was Andrew Neil and again he's then somebody who's been able to rehabilitate his reputation and until he left the BBC was really seen as one of the kind of grandees of British broadcasting and one of you know the best that the BBC had to offer. So I wouldn't be too confident uh, about the robustness of, you know, legacy media outlets in challenging anti-science nonsense when they come across it. It just so happens that there has been a pretty strong consensus around coronavirus and the vaccine in this country, because while we do have a degraded public sphere, it is nothing like that 
fucking sewage, which is American broadcasting. No, exactly. Also, potentially because I mean, Boris Johnson was was in 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 power. If Labour had been in power, it would have been interesting to see how many of mm. people who are currently government ministers would have been, you know, these rabid lockdown deniers on these protests or whatever. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg licking a contaminated swab in the Commons just to prove a point. It's possible. I, I don't think it's that out there. I would like to see uh, it. Let's wrap up there. Ash Sarkar, it's been a pleasure as always being joined by you on this Monday evening. Well, thank you for having me. The best part of my week, I say it every week, but it doesn't get less true. Thank you, everyone, for your super chats tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm and you'll be thrown over to that page when this stream ends. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>